Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today our podcast is still a lie as we are continuing our journey through all of the Bonds with today's Skyfall. James Bond's loyalty to M is tested when her past comes back to haunt her. When MI6 comes under attack, 007 must track down and destroy the threat, no matter how personal the cost. High stakes for Bond. And we have a guest. We have a guest. Who is our guest? Our guest is one Jamie O'Dwyer of the Anti-Church Twitch stream. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so what is your history with Bond films? Ooh, so... I knew about Bond through cultural osmosis. Sure. A lot of people of my generation, that's sort of how they're acquainted. But AMC, American Movie Channel, like Mm -hmm. broadcast every single Bond film except for the non-Eon Productions Casino Royale film. Sure. They put all of them on and they just, for a month long, they were just uh, showing film after film after film after film. And my brother loved those films, and I just ended up watching them with him. Aw, that's fun. Yeah. So do you have any, like, of, of like, the older ones that are particularly favorites of yours? Uh, okay, controversial opinion, but any with Timothy Dalton in it. <laughs> okay, Timothy Dalton's great. He was a great choice for Bond, and they tried some really cool stuff with his Bond films. I mean, I think so, too. And I think that's why they ended up casting uh, Pierce Brosnan later on. Oh, for sure. Now, how do we feel about George Lazenby Mm. on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Uh. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. It's just interesting to hear others' opinions. It's it's not bad, but it's not my favorite. That's okay. I understand why people hate it. I personally love it. We are on record as being pro that movie, if not completely pro Lazenby. Although we were like, could we give him four more movies and see what he could actually do? Because we barely get to find out. Yeah, he really should have stayed on for like a, th- a, a three film arc and it could have been great. Okay, but Skyfall. 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 The reason we're here today. Are, yes. are we ready to get into this? <sighs> okay. Rip off the bandaid. So you are on record as having some very strong opinions about Casino Royale. Oh, I think Casino Royale is fucking amazing. It is. It is my highest rated Bond film to and, date. And as we as we discussed on that, I came in with a slightly controversial opinion. Slightly. Yeah, it, it was wrong. <laughs> Your opinion was wrong. Well, the movie is on on a on a fresh watch, the movie is a little slow. It's a little slow. It's got a little too much going on, mm-hmm. and it still feels like they're figuring some things out. Okay. Skyfall's better than Casino Royale. It's not. It's so much better. It's not. (laughs) (sighs) Jamie, how do you feel about that statement? (laughs) Skyfall is actually, I would argue, a quintessential Bond film and establishes Daniel Craig as a classic Bond. Oh, I I fully agree with that statement. Yes. I don't think that makes it a better Bond film. (laughs) I think its aim is completely different from Casino Royale. Well, yes, but I think that's... But I think if what you want is a quintessential, iconic Bond film, then Skyfall is your movie. If you want a greedy reboot film, then Casino Royale is what you want. Yeah. 
No, it's absolutely true. And even even in this discussion, I mean, that's where the the preference is going to fall mm-hmm. along those lines because mm-hmm. they are two very different movies. And as you've pointed out with Casino Royale, the thing that really attracts you to it is that if James Bond wasn't involved in this story at all, mm-hmm. take the Bond aspect out of it, yeah. you would still really like Casino Royale. It's a kick-ass yeah. movie without any of the Bondness to it. And I would 100% agree with that. But this, oh. this has all of the feelings of mm-hmm. Thunderball and Goldfinger and even some of the best of the Brosnan era is mixed in here a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know about some of the Brosnan. We'll get in. We'll get into it with the trivia. There's actually some elements of Brosnan in here that got baked into the script. Okay. But like they took bits and pieces of the most classic Bond films and put them with this character who is a lot darker and more mm-hmm. damaged and made something that I feel like is a perfect Bond movie. I just love that they made this one all about M. That relationship. I I I love that that that's the main crux of it. Like what? Well, not only that, they they got Bond is getting older, which we we've seen that a little bit with Sean Connery too in the unsanctioned Never Say Never Again. So I like that they played with that a little bit. Like he got injured, he's a little bitter and angry at M, but like at the end of the day, he's gonna die for her. That's just the way it is. And like she trusts him, and I just ugh that whole like. I should get one thing right. Ugh. It's mm. so good. Like I like that. That's the meat of the story. Yeah, Ugh, I love it. It's so good. It's so good. I think the disappointing thing is, is that it is a iconic Bond film in the best ways and the worst ways possible. Oh, most. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that's just so disappointing to me. You know, like mm-hmm. Bond doesn't smoke anymore, doesn't hit women anymore, but he's still a raging misogynist and. I feel like they could have done away with that, and they didn't. <laughs> it's so disappointing. They tried to ride a line with Money Penny, yeah, and they they just got too close to it. They flirted with it way too much, and yeah, it, because what I loved about when they introduced her, you didn't know that's who it, she was going to be at all. No, they don't say her name till the end of the movie. Exactly, and I loved that, and I lo- was like, oh, you've got this character who's basically on equal footing. She's a field agent. She's badass. And she'll flirt with James, but that's it. But then they they go to Macau, and she shaves him, and it is hot. But it's like this is inappropriate for two <laughs> for coworkers. This is an inappropriate coworker interaction. No, they pushed it just a little too just, far. Just too far because because the the flirting in the office where he's just like you know a moving target's too hard, like those types of things. Those were funny, and that's classic James Bond. Because she gives it right back to him. Yeah. And that's the same type of money penny we got with like Pierce Brosnan, who was way more misogynistic than this James Bond. Good lord. At least this James Bond is occasionally respectful of women. Occasionally. I don't even know if I agree with that assessment, though, because we get that scene with Severine. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Severine. They're they're doing the, the shootout with the old pistols. Yeah. And it's like, you know... You gotta understand that I love Bond so much that after I saw that scene, I was already coming up with excuses for Bond. Like, I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, oh, Bond just can't show that he cares because, you know, then Silva will, like, 
use that against him and stuff. And it's like, but no, 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 there's no excuse for it. There's there's no need. It didn't need to be there. It's fair. That's continuing something that they set up in Casino Royale. They use the final cut moment. We, we mentioned that in our episode. It is an incredibly harsh line, but it is quintessentially the harshness of James Bond. They have not strayed from that in this character. That, like He let himself have feelings for someone. She betrayed him and she got murdered. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And from now on, he refuses to have feelings. I will have no feelings. Which I think what what is irksome in this film is that because they've hearkened back to the classics so much, mm-hmm. it feels like the wrong tone. Yeah. It worked when you were doing a cocky, self-assured, turning into a hardened assassin character. Yeah. But now if you're pushing for more of the grandioseness mm-hmm. of classic Bond, it feels way too hard. Yeah. Especially when the whole movie is supposed to be about him having this loving relationship to a woman. Having this one relationship where that line is never going to be crossed. Yes. That he, he, he does absolutely love and respect this woman. It's a really odd tone to throw into this movie. Hmm, maybe that's why they couldn't find a balance. Because they've never done that with Bond. It, it is off-putting. <laughs> or maybe it's because Bond lost his mommy, then got M as a replacement mommy. And then replacement mommy had him executed. Oh, that could be it. That Abandonment issue is a big sure. part of it too. That could, that could <laughs> like, I, replacement mommy was okay with me being murdered. Rude, rude, mommy. Like the one thing they've never touched on in this set of films, and they desperately needed to, was to get him in therapy. Yeah, even for five minutes, like more robust psychological evaluations. Yeah, because what we get in this movie is not enough. Like, like that should have been, like, we always have a cue scene, or we, we haven't always, but we it's a typical thing. We should have a typical every movie. We should have, like, the psychological evaluations and debriefings from the last thing. It's like, oh, no, no, you have to do your full debriefing, and this is going to be, like, a week-long intensive therapy session over all of this crap. He's been through so much fucking yeah. trauma in this series. That would be a great addition, and they could give them a funny letter name, and it would be great. <laughs> It would be great. I know. Yeah. And I'll say something that, full disclosure, this isn't my idea. I I watched a video essay by Movies with Mikey. But, you know, he he isn't entirely to to blame for everything that happens in this film because M is the one that put him out there. Oh, true. Yeah. Like, M M straight up lied to him and told him that he was fine and told him to go out there. Mm -hmm. And, like, everything that happens after that, I'm willing to say... M has like an an equal, if not even more so, responsibility for everything that happens after that because Bond was absolutely not fit physically, mentally, like any way you slice it, he was not fit to be doing what he no. went and did. Nope. Not not even a little bit. And M says a line when they get to Skyfall and they get inside. M says, "I fucked this up, didn't I?" No. And it's like, she knows. She she knows she did things wrong. And that's why that final line from her is so meaningful. Yeah. At least I did one thing right. And that's 
find you. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I took care of you, I tried to save you, and I brought you here, like, and you're the one good thing I've done. Well, I picked you as an agent, and I trusted you. Like, yep. that was the right thing that I did. So yep. that's like, mommy loves you. <laughs> mommy loves you. I don't want feelings with my bond, damn it. No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right. The budget for this movie was $200 million. We are upping the ante with this film. Its opening in the U.S. was eighty-eight million three hundred sixty-five thousand. U.S. gross three hundred four million. Globally, this is the first Bond film and only Bond film to date to make one billion dollars. Damn! Actually, made one point one billion. It's that damn song. <laughs> that so does not catchy. hurt. So fucking catchy. The production went one hundred and twenty-seven days. With 172 total scenes being filmed. That's too many. And if you want to feel like that's long, it was actually scheduled for six more days. So this was planned. They came in under time. The organizational snob in me wants to say good job, but also too many. (laughs) It's too many. Well, one of the things that hurts that is this movie was almost completely shut down. Development got set aside for a nine-month period because... On April 19th, 2010, they had to suspend production completely because MGM could not get sold in bankruptcy. So because they weren't able to get it sold, they did not have the financing secured. So they said, we can't make this movie right now. Now, in January 2011, they finally got MGM sold and the green light was back on and they were doing very limited work behind the scenes. So that's when they decided, okay. We're going to take our time and we're going to get this released in 2012 for the 50th anniversary of the franchise. And that ties into this movie a little bit. Okay. I think that's why this movie has been structured like a classic Bond film, because it is an anniversary film. It's better than the last anniversary film. Oh, God. It's not Die Another Day. (sighs) Wow. That was painful. That was a bad movie. Uh. Our writing. Once again, we have Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, but we have a new big deal screenwriter coming in, and that is John Logan. Before this, John Logan did RKO 281, Any Given Sunday, Gladiator, The Time Machine from 2002, Star Trek Nemesis, The Last Samurai, The Aviator, Sweeney Todd, Coriolanus, and Hugo. After this, he's going to go on to write for Spectre, Genius, Alien Covenant, and he created Penny Dreadful. Oh, okay. Huh. What do we think of the writing? I'm pro. You're pro? I like the story. Uh, I mean, obviously I like the story. And it's like, it could have used a little bit more quippiness, but I I liked it. I mean, the writing's good. It's pretty solid. I think this is the first time in a long time we've had the classic formula feel mm-hmm. to a Bond film, but it works so intensely well. They filled in the gaps perfectly with story and character. Eh, sorry, bug. I really liked it as a Bond film. I don't think, you know, like uh, other franchises, you know, Jason Bourne, John Wick, you can get away with these stories that, that you know, it, you think about it too long and it doesn't hold up. It's it's good writing and it also has a lot of subtle self-reference to older Bond films. Yes. I mean, the car and the <gasps> stick with the button underneath. I mean, yep. that was just, that was just, I, I, I love that self-referential stuff because that brings back the sort of self-awareness that 
Bond films started to get mm-hmm. after after a while, right? Like there was <laughs> there was a little bit of you know I don't know I don't know who was responsible for that, but Bond films started to have this bit of quirkiness to them in their in their sort of self awareness, and I love that they put that in the film. It really started with On Her Majesty's Secret Service, like that first meeting. I think it was in the cue scene, and they're like, "Well, we do still operate when you're not here." <laughs> like it's that. It's actually. It's also at the very beginning of the movie when he gets beat up on the beach, and he goes, "This never happened to the other guy." Yeah. I mean, it. That's immediately when it started. When we switched from Sean Connery, yeah, they had to say something. Yeah, they just started acknowledging what was going on in universe. I I love the self referential stuff. Those little nuggets. So, uh, that ca- the car. I wasn't prepared for that, and I was like, oh, "It's the car." Uh-huh. One of our previous guests asked which car was our favorite, and I couldn't remember. And I was like, "Oh, it's that one. That's the car." The DB5. The DB5 is my car. This movie actually got the anniversary references right. That's not the only one that they put in the movie. There's a piece of scrap metal given to an agent for her eyes only. Mm-hmm. There is the handprint Walter, which is actually the same technology used in License to Kill. Oh yeah. There's the explosion at MI6, mm-hmm. which is the same thing that happened in The World Is Not Enough. Mm-hmm. Don't touch your ear to Money Penny. They're making a direct call back to Casino Royale mm-hmm. to the agent who kept touching his earpiece. Very, very beginning, yeah. We talk about Bond's parents, which is a reference back to Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the two biggest things from Dr. No, the Walter PPK, mm-hmm. which hadn't been featured in a while in the franchise, yeah. and Bond. James Bond. Yeah. It's good. So they they did it intentionally, but like we talked when we when we talked about Die Another Day, they somehow tried to bake in a reference to all 20 previous movies in that one. And it was bizarre. Some of them were great, but some of them were not. They were so bad. And in this one, they got the touches right. Yeah. Because they knew exactly what they wanted to hit. Well, also, it's here's the thing about those those things. If you know, you know, and you love it. And if you don't, you don't. They don't change the context of the scene for you as a viewer. Nope. And that's how those should be handled. Well, some actors with smaller parts never actually received a script for this film. That sounds about right. And did not know what was going to happen until they got to set. That's how secret they kept the plot for this film. Contracts were incredibly strict to protect everything. And advanced scripts that went to the actual actors were individually stamped. So if any information got leaked to the press, they would know exactly who leaked it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> they were way deep on trying to protect everything. Daniel, it's all your fault. But I do remember this being widely publicized as nobody knows what's going to happen in this movie. And some of that came with a long lead time. For the title, Purvis and Wade actually came up with the idea around 2 a.m. They just plucked it out of thin air. We needed a haunting name of a place, and it turned out to be something that struck a chord with the filmmakers. I, I like it. Yeah. I think I, I love it because it, it's evocative of like when like the final battle is happening. But also, it's very it feels very code word. It feels code word, and then once you find out what it is, it's like, oh, oh, this is way deeper. Yeah. So like, this goes back to your childhood. Yeah, this is fucked up. <laughs> I love it. There were rumors, though, of other titles. The media thought it was going to be Carte Blanche or Red Sky at Night. Those are bad names. Car- <laughs> Carte Blanche could be cool, but Red Sky at Night, I mean, 
I don't need another Russia plot. No, thank you. Nor do we need to be on the sea. No. No, <laughs> no not unless we're putting them back in that Navy uniform. Mm. Mm. Bond in a Navy uniform is quite nice. It's very attractive. Other possible titles included A Killing Moon, Once Upon a Spy, or Silver Bullet. Oh, I like that Once Upon a Spy. Once Upon a Spy could be really good. That's such a Bond title. It is, especially if they're going to do something like From Russia with Love. They're going to do something in that vein, or The Spy Who Loved Me. If they're going to go that route, that's a perfect title. It's true. So they should keep that in the candy bag. And of the remaining Ian Fleming novels that had not been used, they put him up to a vote Okay. as to what might be most popular. Risico and the Property of a Lady were the two most popular. I like that. Though the Hildebrand rarity did get some mentions. Anyway, Skyfall got picked up. The media figured it out when they found the domain names jamesbond-skyfall.com and (laughs) skyfallthefilm.com were registered way before the announcement was supposed to happen. That's hilarious. And when they announced the title, producer Michael Wilson said, this is the worst kept secret in London. That's fair. Everybody knew what the title was by the point they announced it. Well, okay, so for Bond 25, they kept that one pretty secret very for a really good long time. They did a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> like. Logan's idea was to transport Bond into new locations outside of his comfort zone. So by filming in Shanghai, this is the first ever Bond movie to actually complete filming in China. License to Kill was originally supposed to film there, but the government kept imposing restrictions and it made it impossible to do. The planned motorcycle chase at the Great Wall of China that was supposed to be used mm-hmm. got moved to Turkey. Okay. So that's why we have that opening scene. That was supposed to be a Great Wall of China motorcycle chase. Oh man, that'd be so cool. I know. I, I need that. that needs to happen in the Bond film. Now, if it was going to happen, it should have happened in the Pierce Brosnan series, because it feels way more him than Daniel Craig. Yeah, I agree, <laughs> but still. Or maybe the new guy. Maybe the new person. I don't know. I've never been more attracted to Daniel Craig than when I saw him ride that motorcycle up the stairs. Yeah, that was very nice. Especially <laughs> especially in that uh, tan suit. Oh, yeah. Ooh, him in the... Ooh, so good. Oh, those suits, man. <laughs> oh, him? I'm sorry. Anytime him and he does the cuffs thing, oh, that's it's Tom move. Ford. That's it's Tom move. fucking Ford. Oh, I I almost cried when I saw him do the cuff thing on the train. <laughs> yes, it's I was so, so happy. It okay. Pierce Brosnan had the tie. Like his whole thing was like straightening his tie. Daniel Craig does his cuffs, and it's just so hot. <laughs> just I'm here for it. I'm really here for it. I just think it's one of those things that you instantly recognize as a Bond quirk. Sure. And it just like, I didn't even think about Pierce Brosnan and his ties, but. They each kind of have their own little thing. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah, but I just kind of like, it, it, but it feels so natural to each one. And it's just so cute and adorable with each, each Bond. It's true. The scene in which Bond and Silva shoot at Severine is taken straight from The Man with the Golden Gun, the oh, novel. Okay. This was intentionally not a sequel to any previous films. They decided to shift away from that after Quantum of Solace, and Broccoli suggested they might return to the idea of Quantum later, but this was kind of a mini-reboot within a reboot for them. Well, this is a shift. Yes. The aim of this is a different thing. They're trying to establish him into James Bond in this movie. Well, it's that, and it's also the changing of the organization. Yeah. 
that's a big like that's a big tonal shift. MI6 is about to completely change. Yeah. <laughs> so the aim of the film is wildly different. Of course, they did not go back to Quantum because they finally got the rights to Spectre. While this film was being made. Just after. Yeah. And so then they did Spectre. There are a lot of similarities in this script to The World Is Not Enough. And this movie blows that one out of the water, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But it took everything that was wrong with The World Is Not Enough and fixed it. Hmm. Okay. Other than the villains, who are slightly separate and different. But ev- we talked about how that movie suffers so much from expositional villains who never get anything to do, but who are actually kind of cool. Okay. Well, it's not enough. That's Denise, Denise Richards, right? Yes. Okay. I have to, I have to anchor them because they start to run together after a while. <laughs> I, I mean, some of the similar elements are you've got a villain who's been okay. deformed. Sure. You blow up MI6. Uh-huh. Bond is injured. Bond is getting older. Yes. Bond is fighting with M. Yes. Okay. Like, there, there are a lot of elements that are the same. Okay. When you describe it that way, yes, it's the same movie. And ties into his family because the world is not enough is the family motto for Bond. Yes. Which ties back to his home uh, and Scotland and all of that. And Scotland was chosen in the books as his homeland as an homage to Sean Connery. Yep. This is the movie that that one really wanted to be. I know. <laughs> Damn. Y'all are making a really good case for this being a better movie than Casino Royale. I'm I like, know! Probably because it is. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> all right. Who could have been better? No one, but okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll entertain the idea. The original writer of this film, before the delay in bankruptcy, was Peter Morgan, the creator of The Crown <gasps> and the writer of Frost, Nixon, and The Queen. Peter Morgan? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he stated on the record that his ideas from the first draft were actually still retained in the script, including what he said was the film's big hook. So I'm assuming Silva. However. John Logan did many, many, many revisions on this film. By the time filming was completed, he'd revised the script 13 different times since the third draft he got when he took it on, and he was continuing to revise during filming. I don't always like to hear that. I don't always like to hear that, but I think that had to do with the director shift. Okay. And having a detail guy like Sam Mendes on there, it was probably more of dialogue. What if we tweak this thing so I can put this detail in? That's fair. Having the guy who had the original idea and who's been with it the entire time also fixing it on sure. set, that's, that works. That's fair. And Mendez is a detail guy. And they weren't rushing it, clearly. True. True. They took four months oh. to shoot this movie. I, oh, a Peter Morgan. <laughs> okay, a Peter Morgan writing a Once Upon a Secret Agent Bond film would be the freaking shit. Peter Morgan could have continued the same tone from Quantum of Solace mm-hmm. if we were going to keep this a sort of gritty, not Bond franchise movie. If they were going to continue the tone that they stayed with for Casino Royale and just keep on rolling with that, maybe. I love the crown. But this movie is way bigger and more epic in scope. True, true. And he is sort of a docudrama guy. No. I mean, yes. But, yes. But he, he's a better writer than that, but that is his bread and that butter. That is his bread and butter. That's totally So true. he's better at something that's more close and intense and personal. I want a James Bond Peter Morgan film. <laughs> I 
feel like Peter Morgan's might have been too slow. A little Fair. too much exposition or too much, you know, what's going on in Bond's head uh, that, <laughs> that, that motivates him to, you know, keep going after and betrays him and, you know, whatever. Oh, totally fair. Too much, too much talking. Not enough shooting. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be an action film at all. It would. It would have to be more of the we're like a James Bond. I'm going to be retired film, or I'm going to try to have a normal life film. Like if that's a if that's the type of interlude type story, I want Peter Morgan to write that because it would be awesome. But no, he couldn't. He couldn't nah. tell this type of story. This would have been weird. I mean, what we got was the Logan of Bond films. Ooh. Right, like this is a this is a worn out, exhausted old Bond who has to pull it together one more time to save M. Like well, it's Logan, it's Logan in Bond skin. I don't know. I think that's what No Time to Die is actually going to end up being. Well, I think <laughs> we'll get there. This may ha- that may have been the intention with this movie, and then you know they kept going. Yeah. So, um, unlike Logan, where we killed the character off rightfully. Oh, that movie's so beautiful. Yep. Oh, that movie's heartbreaking. Our director is Sam Mendes. Before this, he directed the 90s revival of Cabaret, and then jumped into American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, and Away We Go. After this, he directs Spectre and 1917. Just a few small films. <laughs> Just a few. What do we think of Sam Mendes? Dude's the shit. <laughs> like, I love Parasite. I would not have been mad if Sam Mendes had won. I would have been disappointed, but I would not have been mad. He is perfect at understanding the balance between trying to make artful touches mm-hmm. in detail mm-hmm. without distracting from the fact that this is a Bond shoot 'em up spy movie. Yep. He, he somehow rides that film. line beautifully this, this movie's gorgeous oh my god roger deakins his cinematographer is also the shit if you talk about sam mendez you barely can get out of there without mentioning deakins as well because deakins is responsible for at least like half of the look of the half movie of the too pretty. and so I, the two of them together combine like i said it's just there's not a bond movie that's looked better than this yeah i think that's true i mean I hands down even the Connery ones, which have some really cool, kitschy, but sometimes colorful and amazing moments. Like the Goldfinger villain set is still Iconic. insanely amazing. Oh, we copy that shit all the time in everything. But this movie is just gorgeous head to toe. And there's an artfulness to it mm-hmm. that I don't think they've tried to put into these movies. Mm-hmm. Really? You don't feel like... Because I, I, I felt like... All of the Daniel Craig films really try to put a certain, you know, put respect on the name, as it were, you know. Oh, for, sh- for sure. But this one took things to a completely different level. With the, with the previous two films, Casino Royale has Martin Campbell, who also did Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. And with Martin Campbell, the brilliance there is he gets the pacing and action of these movies so well. He really did up his game for Casino Royale from Goldeneye. He gets the feel and the vision of it. And then Mark Forster, I think the biggest problem with Quantum of Solace is it's definitely trying to do the same thing Sam Mendes does here, but I think he swings way too far in the let's make it look pretty direction and mm-hmm. doesn't remember that it's a Bond movie. 
Like that was our number one complaint with Quantum was this doesn't feel like a James Bond movie at all. And that's all. fair. I, I would say it's more like a Jason, like Jason Bourne. Yeah, it's just it's off the mark. Mm-hmm. And Mendez took that same sensibility, but then said, "By the way, we're never going to forget that this is a popcorn action movie. Mm-hmm. This is a spy thriller that we want people to be engaged in." But if you want to look for all the gorgeous detail behind it, you'll see it. Now, do either of you have a sense where Mendez got that from? Because, like, I look at his credits, you know, aside from the ones that you mentioned, and I just don't see how he did it. You know, like he, I mean, I can sort of see it in maybe Road to Perdition, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, Jarhead is, <laughs> you know, if, if like... I would argue, you know, maybe Quantum of Solace is the jarhead of, of Bond films. Like, I don't know. It's too. How did Mendez do it? I mean, <laughs> this is not a criticism of Mendez, but it's like it's not his wheelhouse. It's not his normal wheelhouse. And then all of a sudden, he pops out two Bond films. It's it's his cinematographer, Roger Deakins. It's a cinematographer, and as we talk about it with the trivia, but just in general, it's time. Especially for this movie, they gave him the time to do it. They have fast-tracked production on these so many times that it's given us a terrible product. So this was this is 2012. This came out. This came out in 2012, and the last one was 2008. Eight. It's four years. They were they started production in 2010, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to come out in 2011. And then we had a nine-month gap. Mm-hmm. And in that nine-month gap. The story basically goes that Daniel Craig meets Mendez at a party and says, do you want to do the next Bond film? Mm-hmm. And they start talking and he meets with the producers and they have all this time to coordinate and build up the ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've said Bond is a movie by committee, but in a lot of ways, Bond is a movie by family. Yeah. The Broccoli family has always engendered that on a set. So I think Mendez went in eyes wide open and said, I'm going to try and put these elements in the way I want to do them. You guys tell me practically what we have to do to get the Bond stuff right. Yeah. And they collaborated perfectly. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like I feel like Barbara Broccoli is like an uncredited director or screenwriter on every single one of these movies. She's so directly hands-on as a producer. And that's not always a good thing. No, but it works for these. Well, I mean, when they hire really good directors, it seems to work out really well. Yeah. And they've been the care- well, the Broccoli family has been the caretakers of the Bond yes. franchise for a very long time. So it makes sense that like they're deeply invested in oh, sure. in the in the franchise and deeply mm-hmm. invested in a very specific vision of Bond. Yeah, and they're the ones if they are going to make a tonal shift, they're the ones who decide what that tonal shift is going to be. Yeah, for sure. So I, in this case, I think it helps. <laughs> So Mendez, part of that story, Mendez was actually originally hired as a consultant during the bankruptcy because they could not pay him a full director rate. Mm. So they said, we're going to bring you on the payroll on this lower end so we can start. Mm. But I think that's the biggest thing, having the lead time. They had time to do their homework and figure out what they wanted to do and then figure out how to do it. And Craig lobbied for him directly after working with him in Road to Perdition. That's cool. It was Mendez's idea to include the original Aston Martin DB5. Yeah. He had a die-cast model of the car as a child. Aw, that's cute. And apparently he is an interesting choice for this role because at the time Daniel Craig was cast in Casino Royale, he was skeptical that it was a good choice for him mm-hmm. as an actor. Oh, okay. So, 
didn't always think that Daniel Craig was the right person to play Bond. That's funny now for different reasons. (laughs) This is his first PG-13 film, so he had to tone it down to get the right ratings for Bond. And he was incredibly inspired by the Dark Knight trilogy. The early reviews of this film compared its mood to The Dark Knight Rises, which came out roughly the same time. And Nolan had actually gone on record way back when saying that the Bond films were an inspiration for those movies. Uh, I get, I see that. So Mendez saw the success of those films and said, we can push this movie in that epic direction. We can make the scope that big mm-hmm. and get people to want to watch it. This is the first Bond film shot entirely in digital, Okay. so that helps with some of the way this looks. Quantum of Solace had a few scenes here and there shot that way, but Deacons chose to shoot with that digital format and in a larger screen format for the IMAX release. This is also the first IMAX Bond film. Oh. So he didn't actually use IMAX film, he just used this larger aspect ratio so that there would still be space on the screen. Mm-hmm. But it would look way wider and way bigger than any other Bond film. Hmm. And you feel it. Yeah. You feel it when you watch this movie. The Shanghai Skyscraper set was nicknamed the Jellyfish and built at Pinewood Studios. And many likened it to a hall of mirrors, like in The Man with the Golden Gun. Deacons noted that the crew kept running into the walls because it was made entirely of glass. And chose to light the set using the giant LED panels to represent the billboards outside the office windows. So that was all Roger Deakins' idea, to do the LED lighting, to make the primary colors go through all the glass. I want to be inside his brain. That was so good. And they originally, they scouted a Chinese skyscraper. They were going to actually use a location, but it wasn't as camera friendly and interesting as building the glass enclosed space. So they went with the Pinewood set instead. So all of that was shot in London. That's so cool. And then they just CGI'd in the background. The exterior tank at Pinewood was filled in for the exterior of the Golden Dragon Casino in Macau. That set was lit by 300 floating lanterns and two 30-foot-high dragon heads. They flew 12 artisans in from China to create those dragons for authenticity. They were made from wound steel silk and lit by 400 light bulbs from within them. They're beautiful. That is the most gorgeous shot in the movie. (laughs) It's so beautifully composed. Daniel Craig could not look hotter. And that is so, that is such a Sean Connery type of look. Oh, yeah. It is gorgeous. And I could have sworn they were on location. No. They're in a soundstage. Damn. Damn it. There's Good lighting does so much work. <laughs> there needs to be a lighting Oscar now. That's what I've decided. I didn't even know that. You're blowing my mind right now. I know. But- <gasps> <laughs> the funny thing, though, is that this does have the most CGI since Die Another Day. What? There are around 500 special effects shots in this film. It was a huge, massive undertaking as part of this movie. Like, it took... Almost as long to get the special effects done after production as it did to film the movie. But almost all of it is to augment the film. Oh, it's not used for main sequences. Oh, it's like get wires out and like it's it's to get wires out. It's to do background shots because they did a lot of stuff at Pinewood. So it's all to create the reality around them and not the direct scenes. Oh, okay. 
And that's why it works so well. You would never recognize how much CGI is in this movie. I caught like once or twice and I was like, eh. Those that- damn Komodo dragons are not real. Well, when he's like flying in and stuff, there's some things there where you're like, yeah, that's not right. But there's a lot where you're just like, I thought they were on location. What? How did you do that? That's crazy. Yeah. And you can't forget Silva's face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Totally. Which is grotesque in the, in best, the way. best way. <laughs> in the best way. Do you know what it does to you? Hydrogen cyanide? Look how powerful you were. Voila. And finally, the film was largely shot in sequence so that the final scenes would be M's death scenes. Mm, aww. Yeah. Love you, Judy Dench. <laughs> You're the shit. On to our cast. <gasps> our cast. And we start with the man, Daniel Craig, as James Bond. What do we think of Daniel as James in this movie? He's so hot. <laughs> it just gets hotter in his eyes as, <laughs> as it gets more wrinkles his eyes just get bluer and I'm just like damn it you just get hotter I'm here for it <laughs> that's the end of my lusting after Daniel Craig it's not but there it is he is steely in this movie he does feel finally like those first two movies were figuring out this character and now it's like no you're just James fucking Bond now and you fucking know it I'll be honest I didn't think I would ever see him as Bond after seeing Knives Out. Ooh, fair. You know, because Benoit is such a wildly different character from Bond, and I'm like, okay, this is it. I can never watch another Bond movie if Craig is in it, because I'll just see Benoit. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I watched Skyfall for, you know, to prep for this, and I was immediately sucked in. Just, yep, yep, that's Bond. That's Bond. Craig got worried by the production delays. At 43, he was already feeling like he was getting too old for the role's demands. It took him six months to prep before each movie. Oh, wow. And he had to do two-hour workouts each day during filming. Ugh. He told Rolling Stone that he wanted this to be his last Bond film. Hmm. Quote, I've been trying to get out of this from the very moment I got into it, but they won't let me go. (laughs) I believe that. (laughs) He got injured again. But only during rehearsal this time, everything got pushed back two weeks so he could heal, but he never got injured during principal photography of the film. That's nice. So, and again, he worked with Tom Ford for all of his suits. 85 versions of the suit in his opening scene were Mm tailor-made. 30 for him and 30-ish each for both of his doubles. Yep. Each version was made for a specific scene. For instance, the motorcycle suit had longer sleeves, so when he was riding, it would not raise up his forearms. Mm-hmm. The costume designer, Johnny Tamim, said each suit had three fittings like a real traditional Savile Row suit. It was high-class tailoring. The first suit was mohair, very lightweight woolen silk. The tuxedo was woolen silk. They were all beautiful fabric. He would be jumping and fighting, and then he would stand up, and the suit would be perfect. Damn. And for the motorcycle chase, they weighted Craig's tie so that it wouldn't fly around. Mm -hmm. Oh, that explains so much. I don't know why Mm -hmm. I didn't think of that. I love that. That's what uh, royals do. Like, 
they, there's a whole thing about like, well, their skirts never fly up and it's really windy in London. It's like, yeah, they put curtain weights in their dresses. Yeah. Because so, it would be so improper. <laughs> it's like, that makes so much freaking sense. That's just practical, damn it. But like, the idea of just going to that length. Yeah, costumes. To get the suits right. They do some really cool shit. It makes him feel more like James Bond. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> Finally, not an Arpon anymore. We've done six films with her. Mm-hmm. She finally gets to be credited in the main cast, Dame Judy Dench as M. She's the fucking best. How do we feel about M in this film? I don't believe I just said how I feel about <laughs> I, I love the fact that she is blinded by this this sideswipe that's being taken against her. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of her actions and a lot of her ego is it's taking this huge hit from Ray Fine's character saying, like, they want you to walk away. Yeah. And she's just like, I'm not I'm not walking away till the job's done. Yeah. Yeah. And the only problem with that is collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And it's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, they've always talked about she's had to make those decisions in these first two movies. She made those kinds of decisions in the Brosnan movies. Yep. And some of it is sublime writing to finally deal with that head on and directly Mm -hmm. but she's so brilliant in playing it and then being totally wrecked by it at the end of the movie i actually was not as impressed by her performance in this film Mm -hmm. particularly her scenes with craig her scenes with rory kinnear Mm -hmm. plays bill tanner i love those that felt like the way she talked to bill tanner was the way i wanted her to talk to bond because she was, she had that very quippy, sharp attitude. But no, and I get why they did this, I think. But she talks to Bond like a bitter mother who's like, mm-hmm. you know, I brought you into this world. I can take you out again. Damn it. You're absolutely right. There's a complete, it's a completely different tone. And I do love Tanner. I, I, I do love that. Yeah. That working relationship. You're right. That, that tone is that way. But I think that has to do with the arrival of Silva. Silva is an agent that has gone wrong. And I th- I think that is part of that issue is why she's talking to Bond that way. Bond feels wronged by M because M said, take the shot. And essentially, as far as they knew, he was dead. Yeah. And so now he's back. And if she doesn't keep him at arm's length, then kind of talk down to him a little bit. He might turn into a Silva-like character, or that that could I I could see that as being like her fear. Oh, absolutely! But I think like they could have explained that with some dialogue a little bit more than like just the tone. Yeah, but I, I I but no, I totally get what you're saying. There's something missing. Yeah, there's something yeah. missing there. And it's just she's never been afraid to dress down Bond before, and it just feels like she's holding back a little. It's that scene when he shows up in her apartment. Like, that scene felt, like, normal. Like, you're not staying here. I love that. That that was great. But there's something missing in there between that scene and the next time we see them together. There is a fan theory that might explain that here a little bit. I love a fan uh, theory. Tell us this fan theory. uh, We we gotta wait just a little bit to that. She actually has more screen time in this movie alone than Desmond Llewellyn ever had in his entire run as Q in the franchise. This makes M officially the most recurrent character in the Bond franchise after James Bond himself. Yay! This role alone. 
M states that she was originally in MI6 Hong Kong operations until 1997. Mm -hmm. This does not coincide with the timeline of her being M in 1995 in GoldenEye. Eh. And so this is what many people point to as Casino Royale being an actual official reboot of the full franchise. Oh, okay. They say that because of that timeline shift, the producers went ahead and intentionally said, no, everything resets with Casino Royale. It's a completely new universe, which isn't a thousand percent true, but we just go with these a Time Lord because it makes He's the most sense. Lord. I'm fine with that. <laughs> the reveal of the Aston Martin DB5 was shot on a very cold late night that also just happened to be Dame Judi Dench's 77th birthday. At 4 a.m., when they had, I guess, wrapped shooting, they presented her with a birthday cake in the cold. Aww. And when she learned from the producers that she was going to die at the end of the film, she said that she cried. Aww. She revealed that her late husband, Michael Williams, encouraged her to sign on to the Emerald, quote, he wanted to live with a Bond woman. That's, That's so adorable. precious. <laughs> That's the most precious. I like that he said Bond woman mm -hmm. and not Bond girl. Yep. That's precious. That's going to make me cry. Fuck, I hate this, I hate this movie. Uh, Judy Dench. <laughs> Why does Bond film sweetness make me cry? Well, let's get away from crying and into horrifying okay. with Javier Bardem mm. as Silva. Before this, did lots of Spanish film, Dance with the Devil, Before Night Falls, Collateral, Goya's Ghosts, No Country for Old Men, Love in the Time of Cholera, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Beautiful, Eat, Pray, Love, and To the Wonder. After this, The Counselor, The Gunman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Mother! Exclamation point, Loving Pablo, and he will be in 2020's remake of Dune. What do we think of Javier Bardem in this movie? I didn't like the blonde hair. It's weird. It's a weird touch. It's not the right blonde for his skin tone. It wasn't necessary. It feels off, but I love him. He's so great. He's very creepy because he's way too happy. He was fantastic. The happiness is just so different for a Bond villain. It's not happiness. It's complete and utter contentment mm -hmm. with the chaos he's about to wreak. Okay, well, it's creepy as fuck. I know. I, it's different, and I love it. It's more of a self-serious version of the, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. It's very Art Goldfinger. And it's also very, I mean, we talk about the world is not enough stuff. It is the thing we wanted from Renard, yes. from the anarchist. Yes. Where it's, he does not give a fuck what happens to him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care if he dies. He doesn't get, care if he gets tortured in the midst of all this. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care if he loses anything. Mm-hmm. He has one goal, and that is kill mommy. Yeah. And it's brilliant while also being terrifying <laughs> because he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. He's just pure chaos. Subject is not approved for field duty and immediate suspension from service advised. What is this if not betrayal? <laughs> she sent you off to me knowing you're not ready, knowing you would likely die. Mommy was very bad. And he relishes doing all these horrible, naughty things mm -hmm. to kill people. Yeah, uh, he's just, he's so creepy and evil, and I love it. <laughs> it's great. Just what you want in a villain. Silva does not appear into this movie until about 70 minutes into the film. This movie is long. It is a long movie, but it never felt that long to me. I never felt the length like I have in some of them. 
Here's the fan theory I was suggesting. Many fans believe that Silva might actually be M's son. Cool. And to add to this, an anagram of Think on Your Sins is your son isn't in HK. Hong Kong. The idea that she left her son at this post to get attacked. Hmm. Her actual flesh and blood. Interesting. If they leaned into that, the whole mommy issues with Bond would make a lot more sense. Yeah. Huh. Oh, man. That's- it would have given a motivation for her to protect this sort of adopted son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because she'd already lost, or so she thought, her actual, her actual son. Huh. So I don't know. It's, it's a great fan theory, and if they'd have actually leaned into it, it might have at least given us that motivation. Oh, sure. According to Bardem, he was offered a role in the franchise earlier, but he wasn't really interested and was too busy at the time. He didn't specify when or mm-hmm. what. He accepted this role instead on the strength of the material. He was so impressed by the script that he actually had it translated into Spanish so that he could better understand the character. Oh, wow. And Mendez cited that as a sign of his commitment to the role. Wow. It was his idea to have his hair and his eyes changed. When he showed up the first day, no one recognized him. Oh, yeah. because They did not know it was Javier Bardem. He has a very distinct look. Yeah. And I mean, especially in No Country for Old Men, but then to like be completely blind and then have, if he's wearing like contacts, just to be like, is that, is that how they're in? And he's wearing some kind of a mouthpiece. Yeah. Because the dentures. Th- there's totally a CGI with there, but he's also wearing some kind of dentures because it pushes his mouth out. Hmm. You can see it when he's walking around. Hmm. You know, I, I think where, where you put it, it's a little uncanny valley mm-hmm. in that. They should have made him unrecognizable, but they either should have gone further or they should have gone more subtle. One of the two. Because they hit this point where you're like, this feels weird. It's a little cartoony. The blonde is just not right for his skin tone. <sighs> dirty blonde. If they just made him dirty blonde. It's just, it's weird. I don't know. It's a little weird. Originally, his introduction was supposed to be one continuous shot. That's how that whole scene was set up. Hmm. But they decided instead to cut back and forth between him and Craig. I think it was a really smart idea for them to, well, it was smart for Bardem, even though he wasn't doing it for this reason, to hold off. Because if he had done it too soon after No Country for Old Men, Mm -hmm. nobody would have seen this villain. Nobody would have seen Silva. They would have just seen Anton with a bad hair job. Absolutely. Or a different hair job. (laughs) The seduction between him and Daniel Craig resulted in near-constant giggling between them. I love it. And also, the interrogation at the new MI6 headquarters was interrupted during one take when Bardem suddenly jumped out of character and got so excited that he was making a Bond movie with Judy Dench and Daniel Craig. It's just like, can I say how wonderful this is? Can we just have a moment? He's adorable. (laughs) That's wholesome. He's a big dork. I love that. I love that for... um, that's just precious. <laughs> because, because he plays such mean, brooding people. The fact that he's like a teddy bear of yeah. a person. He's like, I'm doing a fun film. <laughs> like, it's I'm in a movie with Daniel Craig and Judy Dench. That's almost unnerving. It's like if Michael <laughs> Shannon did that. I would be like, wait, what? <laughs> the downdraft from the helicopter in the final scene was so powerful that it blew the false teeth out of his mouth. <laughs> Excellent. And his favorite villain was his first villain. The first Bond movie he ever saw was Moonraker. Nice. So Jaws. Jaws. And who could have been better? Get ready to gross out. It was Kevin Spacey. Yeah. 
Mendez offered Spacey an unspecified role. It's believed to have been Silva. Glad he didn't take it. Javier Bardem's way better. I understand why he would have offered it to him. Especially because of their working relationship. Of course. American Beauty. He can go long walk, short bridge. Yes, please. On to Rafe Fines as Gareth Mallory. Hello. Before this, he was in 1992's Wuthering Heights, Schindler's List, Quiz Show, Strange Days, The English Patient, Oscar and Lucinda, The Avengers from 1998, The Prince of Egypt, Spider, The Good Thief, Red Dragon, Made in Manhattan, The Chum Scrubber, The Constant Gardener, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, all the Harry Potter movies, In Bruges, The Hurt Locker, The Reader, God, he was in a lot of movies, Clash of the Titans, Coriolanus, Wrath of the Titans, Great Expectations from 2012. After this movie, Fuck. The Grand Budapest Hotel, Spectre, Hail Caesar, 2016's Richard III, Kubo and the Two Strings, the Lego Batman movie, Holmes and Watson from 2018, the Lego movie 2, the second part, Doolittle, and he will be in No Time to Die. Okay, what do we think of Ray Fiennes? I forgot who he was in Harry Potter for a moment. (laughs) I'm I'm ashamed of myself. That was so good, because when I saw him, I immediately thought, oh, it's Voldemort. Of course he's the bad guy. Of course Bond doesn't like him. Like... Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I just couldn't not see Voldemort. And, Absolutely. And I feel like even though there's a significant difference between what he looks like in his mm-hmm. Voldemort costume, you know, with all that makeup and everything, and what he looks like without it, like, they played into that. They wanted us all to see him as the villain. Like, they were relying on us and our association. Oh, and it was, it worked so well. They totally set it up for us to suspect him to be the other bad guy. Because usually we have two people playing bad guys in the Bond films. And yeah. so he was supposed to be the bad guy who's here to take to to ruin M's career and get rid of Bond. That's the whole plan. And I, it's played perfectly. But I love that once they make the reveal, they're pointing everything back to the original M. Mm-hmm. He is inhabiting all of the old school M stuff mm-hmm. in the best way. Yeah. Partially because he's such a great actor, too, that he's able to inhabit that while bringing something else to the role. But, like, just that final scene with him where you're like, shit, it's back to old school again. Good luck, 007. Don't cock it up. I didn't realize it when, until now, having seen the old films, I'm like, oh, that office looks. Just like, oh, they, they made it to look similar to the original. It turns out they made it exactly like the original. That office is a direct replica from Dr. No. Which I didn't know that. I was just like, oh, I just know it's like the similar layout. And like, oh, it's just meant to be similar. Oh, no, it's the exact same. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, it's it's all intentional and it's perfect because that relationship, having Judy Dench there became this really interesting focal point. And now for the future, they're like, we want to go back to that old thing where he hates M. Or he doesn't hate M, but he and M operate on two very different planets. Yeah, it's a little more antagonistic. They're yes. Not, they're not really friends. No. Yeah. And I love it. I love that he is the perfect guy to cast for that. Well, and I like that he took a bullet for M. He did. Mm-hmm. He took a bullet for her. So he's he's he is still loyal to the, that cause. Absolutely. I, I think that was important to show. It's important so that when you do set him up as M, you can go, okay, yeah, I believe it. Like, no, he's on our team. Yes. He's on our team. <laughs> That's important. Because otherwise, he's- it's like, you're the dude who, who took our lady's job. Yeah. 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 We need to, yeah, we needed to make sure he was on our team. 
Fines wound up confirming in press that he would be portraying a government agent, and there was rampant speculation that he would be M. But while he didn't go that far, he did kill the rumor that he would have been the new Blofeld. Oh, interesting. Because that was the other piece of speculation they had. So, again, playing into that evil thing. Next up, Naomi Harris as Eve, parentheses, money penny. We talked about her previously when we reviewed Moonlight. She was amazing. Before this, she was in The Tomorrow People, 28 Days Later, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Miami Vice, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Street Kings, and the 2011 National Theater production of Frankenstein. Oh, wow. After this, she was in Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, Southpaw, Spectre, Our Kind of Traitor, Rampage, No Time to Die, and will also be appearing in Venom 2, or at least she is rumored to be in it. Interesting. What do we think of Money Penny? I, I really like her. <laughs> I, I really love that we brought a person of color into like the Bond team. Oh, dear God. Thank you. Thank you. And not in a horrible way, like you've done it every other time. No. Not only was she as an actor awesome but mm -hmm. as money penny being a field agent which mm -hmm. you know hello secretary now is a field agent yes like that's awesome right it, it's amazing and like when she's in the office it's like oh i'm not on field duty for obvious reasons like oh you shot somebody you don't get to, you you're, you have to be on office duty for a little bit like that's a fair like technical punishment <laughs> but they don't ever rule out that she could go back exactly or that she might be in deep cover by doing that yeah and it's such a perfect way to make that character more interesting and more valuable absolutely and like and of course it and then it get, it puts her back into that position of being the assistant to m or mallory mm-hmm wow yeah it's so it's just so great naomi harris's favorite bond girl Grace Jones from A View to a Kill. I mean, Grace Jones is the shit. That movie sucks, but... <laughs> She's good in it. She's good in it. Berenice Marlowe as Severine. This is her introduction to film. Really? She had not done a lot before this and really had never taken on a film role before this. Okay. After this, she's in 5 to 7, The Spoils Before Dying, Kill Switch, the 2017 Twin Peaks run... And Valley of the Gods. What do we think of Severine in this movie? I think she's the lady that Bond has sex with in the shower. Yes. So that is literally all I remember about her in this film. Mm. What I will give her credit for is she's not she's not as bad as some of like the 60s and 70s Bond girls sure. could be. There is a presence. I do love the scene where she's trying to be mysterious mm -hmm. and he clocks her as scared shitless. Okay. Because she has... She does these wonderful subtle ticks mm -hmm. of like twitching and it's you wouldn't tell if you're not looking but you see it and you go, "Oh, you are terrified." Mm. Because these guys are going to kill you if you say the one wrong thing. Yeah. And you feel that from her a lot. You feel it from her in the shooting scene. It is harsh and it's a bad tone, but her fear is palpable and I do appreciate that. Yeah, I hope she ends up in uh more action films in a more active role, if you will, because mm -hmm. she uh, she clearly has the the uh, chops for subtle subtlety as well as you know big gestures. She can pull it off. It just didn't give her a lot to work with. She didn't have she didn't have much meat. No, she deserves better, and that's why I hope she gets cast in future stuff. 
Her favorite Bond girl is Ivana on a top. <laughs> Famke Jansen and Goldeneye. I mean, she she takes that character and then rolls with it in a different direction in a kind of a fun way, I think. Sure. She modeled her performance off of that character and the mythological Chimera. She'd only once appeared on a show wearing a red wig and nothing else in France. And she didn't have an agent prior to the film. She apparently got this role on her own. Wow. Michael G. Wilson went on to acknowledge that she probably was not in this movie enough. They probably should have given her more time. She would have been a good character to have come back later. Yeah. Show up later. She wasn't actually dead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And fun story. She said that during their shower scene, and God, I love Daniel Craig. He was extremely hesitant and shy and nearly balked when he saw her naked in the shower. He nearly was like, I'm not doing this. He wanted to keep his underwear on for the scene. Mm Mm-hmm. And she actually coaxed him into being like, it's fine. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Let's do this. This is why intimacy coaches are necessary. <laughs> I just, ah, he's so good. Every time we hear about him, it's like, you do the right thing. Thank you. We, we keep hearing lots of stories about him being very concerned about actresses' comfort yes. on set. Thank you. Like, that seems to be a continual story about him, and so I appreciate that. Uh, he, seems, he sounds to be a, a, a good dude. He's a good dude. I like what a mensch. That's, a, that's an important thing. I'm allowed to continue to lust after him. Yay! Yay! And finally, in our main cast, we have Ben Wishaw as Q. Before this, he was in Layer Cake, Stoned, Nathan Barley on television, Perfume, The Story of a Murderer, I'm Not There, Brideshead Revisited in 2008, The International, Bright Star, 2010's The Tempest, and Cloud Atlas. After this, he did The Hour on television, Days and Nights, Paddington, he is Paddington, Mm -hmm. The Lobster, Suffragette, The Danish Girl, Spectre, In the Heart of the Sea, A Hologram for the King, Paddington 2, Mary Poppins Returns, The Personal History of David Copperfield, No Time to Die, and he will be appearing in season four of television's Fargo. What do we think of Ben Wishaw as Q? I'm so happy that he's Q. He's so good. They could not pick, have picked a better, like, that's not true. They could have gone with Freddie Hydemore. <laughs> like, <laughs> awkward, dorky, British dude. <laughs> that's what they needed to fill this role. And they got him. Well, you know, Freddie Hydemore couldn't also play a little bit stuck up and arrogant. Oh, no, he could. But Freddie Hydemore wasn't old enough to pull this off. I just, Ben so Wishaw, Ben oh, Wishaw mixes the tech savvy wunderkind with also being arrogant and annoyed that Bond is there. I I just, I, that scene with them in the museum is just, <laughs> it's perfection. Gun. And radio. Not exactly Christmas, is it? Were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that anymore. So, uh, that's a, that's a perfect callback. And, and the fact that he fucks up. He fucks up big. He does. He does fuck up big. (laughs) I loved him, and I think it was really smart that they cast someone younger, because they could have probably found somebody older. Mm -hmm. But since they were really trying to sell up Bond as this old man who is totally aged out of the 00 program and Mm -hmm. MI6, the fact that they had 
this young, you know, a millennial or, or a Zoomer, right? As, yeah. as, uh, as Q was perfect. Cause it just like, they, they totally, and then having M die at the end, right? Mm-hmm. The old guard, right? It's, the it's old guard gone. is dying off. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, it, it's, it's just perfect. It's, it's the right tone. And it's also like, I've got some tricks up my sleeve, dude. Like, I may be young, but I know some shit. <laughs> like, oh, and then, yeah, I totally screwed up. Like, who let them in? And it's like, oh, damn. Damn it. <laughs> I, I love that. That was just like, you're so dumb. You're precious. You're uh, precious little baby. Sweet, baby sweet Q. boy. <laughs> the producers wanted him to be a young genius. This was all the broccolis. They really wanted somebody who would emulate a Zuckerberg or a Jack Dorsey. Okay. That's the vibe they were going for. Okay. Now, somebody with spy credentials more so, so, you know. Okay, a wonderkin. Oh, uh, yeah. Q's mug has the letter Q as a tile from Scrabble, complete with its score value, 10. Mm-hmm. And he shares his birthday with Sir Roger Moore. Aww. Who could have been better? They considered bringing back John Cleese. No. But I'm glad they didn't. I am, too. Wouldn't have worked with Daniel Craig ever. It would have been the completely wrong tone. Yeah! Because we didn't have a Q for the last two movies. It was the right time to bring in a brand new queue. Absolutely. I love this. Okay, that is it for our main cast. We go on now to random persons of note, Arpons. First up, Albert Finney as Kincaid. I love Albert Finney so much. The OG Poirot, Big Fish, Tom Jones, Annie. This is his final film role. Now, he lived for seven more years, but he just retired. He stopped filming, yeah. Albert Broccoli had always wanted to work with him, but it never came up. Who could have been better? Sean Connery. Fuck. The role was originally written with him in mind, and Broccoli and Wilson wanted him to come in uncredited and surprise everyone. That would have been amazing. Mendez nixed it. Yeah. And his reasoning was, I think that's problematic. Because to me, it becomes, it would take you out of the movie. Connery is Bond, and he's not going to come back as another character. I I fully agree with Mendez. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right call. I Okay. <laughs> now, Jamie, I've been uh, I've been yelling about this for a while, but in No Time to Die, it's Bond twenty five. I want every single Bond to show up in a cameo in this Bond. I don't care what the fuck they're doing. I want them all in the goddamn movie, just drinking a martini, driving a car. I don't care. I want them all in the fucking movie. But like, if they have the other five, if they have the other gentlemen all at a cocktail party, they could have like. One chair that has the tuxedo suit that's like, but an empty chair, like reserved for him. That would be nice. They, they could do something in that way, like, or they could have like the the other martini. It's never gonna happen. Pay them all the money and just <laughs> do it. I want it. Uh, flashing through the rest of these, Roy Kinnear as Tanner, Helen McCrory as Claire Dower MP. She was Narcissa Malfoy in Harry Potter. Wolf Blitzer as himself, a CNN news anchor. Roger Yuan as Severine's bodyguard. This is a legendary trainer and martial arts coordinator who also trained Craig for the film and choreographed all the action sequences. Hugh Edwards as the BBC news anchor. He is a longtime BBC news presenter. Mm. And Michael G. Wilson as a pallbearer at the funeral. Rumored Bond girls for this film. Now, they didn't have any specificity because nobody knew anything about the script. But four names that came up, Frida Pinto. Ooh, nice. Olivia Wilde, coming up again. Yeah. Rachel Weiss, mm-hmm. and Alice Eve. 
Rachel Weiss, awesome, love her. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Complicated history with the director and the actor. Yeah, uh, this will be a little strange now. <laughs> um, Frida Pinto would be great. Olivia Wilde's still a little young at this point. That leads us into our song. We have Skyfall by Adele. Everyone, what do we think of this song? They really nailed the Bond song formula with this. Oh, yeah. Like, it feels very Shirley Bassey. It feels very Shirley Bassey, but nobody in the Bond writing legacy was involved in this. This is all Adele and her writing partner, Paul Epworth. But, like, it also stands on its own. Yeah. And, I mean, Adele's powerhouse. Like, <laughs> So it just I don't think there's a better one. In all of the Bond films? I would be hard pressed. Like I I love Goldfinger. I love Diamonds Are Forever. Mm -hmm. But this, like you said, is also a pop standard hit on its own. And those aren't really. True. The only song that we've heard that I would give credence to next to it is Chris Cornell, You Know My Name. And that one's just slightly under this. It's an incredibly great song. But this just edges it out because it's got that classic Bond feel. It does. <laughs> and the, the credit sequence that goes with it is also pretty amazing. I just, I don't think we've had a better song for this franchise yet. This one, it's just, it's epic. Yep. Just like the movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm loath to give you any credit. Again, music by Adele, lyrics by Paul Epworth, performed by Adele. It debuted at number eight on the Hot 100 and is the first single to chart since Madonna's Die Another Day. Ugh, that song is garbage. <laughs> that song is hot, hot garbage. Oof. It debuted at number four on the UK single chart after 48 hours and hit the top 10 iTunes charts in 21 different countries. Damn. Yeah. Counterpoint, I think If Nobody Does It Better came out. Uh, from The Spy Who Loved Me. If The Spy Who Loved Me came out today with Nobody Does It Better, it would probably be on, on par with Skyfall. You're not wrong. All right, we haven't done this in a while. Awards. Uh, the f uh, awards? This film was nominated for five Academy Awards. What? Best Song, Best Score, Best sound mixing, best sound effects editing, and best cinematography. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it won, too. Skyfall became the first Bond theme ever to win best original song at the Oscars. Yeah, that's fair. And it tied for best sound editing. Really? Yes. That's cool. So. Damn. Mendez just bringing it up to up a Up in the level. level. Damn. You add that technical skill and it's going to get recognition. Also, Skyfall is the only Billboard Top 10 hit to win Best Original Song at the Oscars since Eminem's Lose Yourself. That's a little depressing. Huh? Okay. Trivia. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There's trivia. Oh. <laughs> so, of course, this marks the 50th anniversary of the franchise. And one of the biggest reveals during this anniversary was the treasure trove of documents revealing Harry Saltzman, original Bond producer's top secret career in British intelligence. That's right. Salty was a spy. <laughs> this is so fucking nuts. <laughs> like, this is just... I feel like I'm being punked. I'm you didn't think there was anything else to reveal, did you? About Salty? About any of them? <sighs> he was a spy. I'm being punked. Nope. 
A big pun. No, this is. In fact, that was one of the reasons that he was able to secure the rights to the 007 novels in the first place, because he and Fleming shared British intelligence experience. It still doesn't explain all the shoes he bought for the fucking elephants. Oh, God. That man is an idiot with money. Yes. Yes, he is. How could he be a spy? Ah. (laughs) I don't. Oh, fuck. Well, keep in mind, keep in mind that British intelligence was basically just a, you know, writing school. Like, you went there, you you got some cool ideas for stories, then you you left intelligence work and wrote books. Like, yeah. That's okay, British that, intelligence. That's, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. That makes more That tones down the coolness a little bit. <laughs> I know, which is why we don't talk about it that way often. No. Okay. Now you've made it more palatable to me. <laughs> But there was a whole book that came out in 2012 about the secret intelligence history of Harry Saltzman. I, like I have to read that book now. <laughs> and the royal premiere of the film reunited for the first time the Saltzman and Broccoli families in the royal box. That's sweet. Along with Lucy Fleming, his surviving daughter, Christopher Lee, who, as we discussed, was Fleming's cousin oh, okay. and himself in British intelligence at one point. Uh-huh. Of ungentlemanly warfare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hillary Saltzman, Stephen Saltzman, and all the Broccolis. That's cool. Daniel Craig performed a significant number of his own stunts, including the actual leap and slide down the escalator rail. That's cool. And the train rooftop fight moving at 31 miles an hour. That's badass. <laughs> he did those cuffs. Yeah. Did good. That was him. Can I just say real quick that I respected the hell out of Bardem for falling? In that chase sequence mm-hmm. down the escalator, when he fell, I was like, oh my gosh, that yeah. never happens in an action film. Yeah, the, 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 they're all supposed to do things perfectly. I like it when you let them, you see them falter just a little. Yeah. And, uh, you know, knowing Javier Bardem, that very well could have been a choice. It could I, have been intentionally done on his part. I could, I could believe that. Yeah. This film touches on Bond's ancestry of recusant Catholics. Mm. Kincaid reveals the secret passage at the ancestral estate, stating it was a hiding place for priests. This harkens back to the outlawing of Catholicism in Britain and families sheltering priests in homes, refusing the Presbyterian faith of Scotland. An actual prominent recusant family mm-hmm. in that period was the Bond family, ah. whose family motto was, was non sufficit orbis, translating colloquially as the world is not, not enough. enough. In fact, John Bond, a member of that family, was reportedly a spy for Sir Francis Drake despite his Catholic ties. Damn, that's cool. Bond is historical. Historically badass. (laughs) I just really liked that the father's hunting rifle said A.B. So you mentioned that and you said Albert Broccoli. It actually is Andrew Bond. Okay. That's his father's name. And it was a complete coincidence that it happened to be A.B. Okay. But- I thought it would. Yeah. But it's a nice touch. Silva's Lair is a tiny island about 10 miles away from Nagasaki. It runs literally three-tenths of a mile long and one-tenth of a mile wide. It's known as Ghost Island, and it used to be a thriving coal community, but it's completely derelict with abandoned concrete buildings. Mm. So that was a real location. Creepy. They didn't even build that set. Bond's passport mm-hmm. is not a prop. It was an official document issued by the British Home Office. Oh, wow. It was a genuine passport, but encoded with information that would flag improper use. So if you actually tried to use it, you would 
get rung up by the government. Oh, that's cool. The details show this information. Name, John Adam Bryce. Date of birth, December 16th, 1968. Place of birth, London. Date of issue, June 22nd, 2012. Expiration date, August 22nd, 2029. Oh, okay. His name on his passport is not James Bond. See, I have said this before. Say of that what you will. I know. This movie features the first audible fuck in Bond history. In the living daylights, Dalton says, quote, for fuck's sake, but it cannot be heard over the plane engines. Mm -hmm. So Dench gets the line, I've really fucked this up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's dead. The opening scene in Turkey took two months to film, three months of rehearsals, four months of preparation, and 200 local crew to create the full sequence. There was significant criticism because the people in Turkey thought they were literally damaging the rooftops during the motorcycle chases. Oh. And a story went around that when the motorcycle went through the window of that story, that that was an accident and it went through one of the renowned stores in the bazaar that was 330 years old. Oh, wow. Wilson had to hold a press conference to say, no, all of the roofs were removed and reinforced then replaced after the fact. Ah. Because this is ancient tiling. They were filming at the Grand Bazaar in Turkey. Mm. It's one of the oldest squares in Istanbul. For filming, the bazaars could open but not trade, and they could only do it on Sundays when it was closed. So because of that, the area got blocked completely to the public, and they paid 750 Turkish lira per day to the shop owners wow. to cover all the losses that they would have. They would dress the set overnight on a Saturday to have it ready for filming, and there were 250 extra market stalls from the art prop department to make it look like it was actually thriving. Wow. <laughs> they always have problems when they have to deal with Turkey. Oh, man. This was a lot. The opening train fight was originally supposed to shoot in India mm-hmm. with people on the roof of the train riding. Okay. The Indian government felt like that would be insensitive to their culture and decided to not let them film there. I respect that. The underground train crash was filmed at the 007 stage in Pinewood. It did not burn down because it has many times. I was about to say for once. I know. Once, yeah. They filmed on what they called the catacomb set with two full-size replica tube carriages weighing around five to seven tons each. Wow. Real tube carriages weigh around 25 to 30 tons, so significantly lighter. They were raised to a track 20 feet above the set and near the ceiling, broken tracks curved downward with a monorail supporting them underneath. So they were accelerated on the track, on the monorail to veer off the tracks and through the ceiling which was made to break away. But when the train crashed, it literally dismantled most of the 007 stage. Wow. That was how powerful that was. And the shots were later supplemented with post-production to fix any of the issues that they had with the staging. Wow. No one could be on set for the filming for safety reasons, Mm -hmm. so they placed 11 remote-controlled cameras around the stage to get full coverage of the train crash. That's good. And it looks impressive it's really awesome it's very cool (laughs) i mean it's effective some of the leaked mi6 agents were named after members of the crew though they were portrayed (laughs) by actors paul inglis is the art director andy surrey an assistant executive producer and steve benalisha a special effects technician oh cute 
Despite Coca-Cola not being an official product, Coke was sprayed on the tarmac of Istanbul to keep the motorcycles from sliding around. Okay. And speaking of product placement. Oh, yes. This film got major controversy mm-hmm. for lacking integrity and commercialization at the time. This had more product placement than Die Another Day. Really? The promotional tie-in with Heineken mm-hmm. was valued at around 28 million pounds. And you might remember around this time, Daniel Craig did commercials with Heineken that were a tie-in for the movie. Oh, okay. That was the biggest standing point, was he had commercials with- He was doing commercials as James Bond. As James Bond, Bond with Heineken. Outside of the film. Yep. Omega Watches and Sony Electronics. Okay. And some also felt there was disrespect to Bond's martini by drinking Heineken. Uh. Yeah. They can fuck off. (laughs) So Michael G. Wilson and Daniel Craig both defended it. And they said, it costs a lot of money to make these movies. I can understand it being a little weird with the commercials. That was the weirdest part. Because I never felt like the product placement in the film was off. No, it feels so perfect. Like him drinking Heineken when he's out, like drinking himself his sorrows away, it makes total sense. That and Tanner drinking a Heineken. Absolutely. Is such a perfect thing. Makes total sense. Him wearing an Omega watch or Omega, Omega watch is how he says it. I mean, it's it's usually it's a high end watch. It's they said they fancy. said two things. It was one, you, we need the money to make this movie. Like, I'm sorry, two hundred million dollars is not easy to come by. No. And number two, a lot of times it's not about the money; it's about the supply. Sure. We knew we were going to shoot these scenes, and we needed Heineken. Yeah. We've got to license that. Yeah. So let's make a deal for it. Give Instead, us, give us the product. We don't have to pay you, and you're giving us money. It's advertising. And that way, we don't have to work around that to do licensing. Yeah, it so, wins for everybody. But despite the largest product placement in the franchise's history, there is no new vehicle in this film. We get the DB5, but there's not a Bond car except for the old one. And that's a first since License to Kill. I don't care. <laughs> I love that car so hot. <laughs> Judy Dench's ringtone on set was the James Bond theme. It became a running gag when it went off. <laughs> This is the first Bond film in which the villain completes his primary objective. True. He kills M. He kills M. M's house in this movie is actually the composer John Barry's house, the originator of the James Bond theme. Aw, that's kind of cool. This is only the second film in which Bond suffers an actual gunshot wound. He was also shot in Thunderball. It's also the only the second time we've ever seen Bond cry. The first was on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm, Tracy Bond needs therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so much therapy. Lot, all the therapies. And finally, Bond's father's rifle is a 500 caliber Nitro Express, an actual elephant gun. He's firing from his hip. That's a bad idea with that gun because it would probably shatter your hip. And apologies for getting a little graphic here. A human getting shot by one of its massive bullets wouldn't just fly back like in the movie. It would probably cause their entire chest to explode and their arms to blow out of their shoulders. That's how big a gun that is. Yeah, uh, they should put that in the movie. <laughs> like, that's that's the gun that they should explode the helicopter with. Exactly. Because that would work. With his dad's rifle? Hello. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that would have been badass. But then they would have to explain how powerful that gun is. Uh, yeah, no. That's why they didn't do it. it. Okay. That's the trivia. And that's Skyfall. 
What a heck of a movie. We now have ratings. So, Jamie, for every movie, we have a specialized rating system. Goes from one to five of whatever the rating system is, with half points involved in between. For this movie, oh boy. How many of those those bulldog paperweights? Oh, of course. The Churchill Bulldogs. Yes. How many of those are we going to give this film? I think you have to go first, David. I'm going to go first. I've already said... I think it's better than Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. But as we've talked about, there's a few things here and there that don't quite work. I'm giving it a four and a half. Okay. Just above Casino Royale for me. It's near perfect and visually to me just captures something that I feel like I really like Casino Royale, but I feel like this movie captures Bond in some way so much better. (sighs) All right. I've been convinced that this film is... A better Bond film. (laughs) But I don't think it deserves a better rating than than my rating for Casino Royale. So? So it's a 4.5. So I'm giving it the same rating I gave. This is 1B. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a 1A, 1B situation. Okay. Because I feel like the aim is completely different. So it depends on, do you want an introduction film or do you want a solidified Bond film? That's fair. Jamie, how many... British Churchill Bulldogs, would you give this film? Oh, I don't know if I would give British Churchill Bulldogs, but I would give five dentures with eye socket support. <laughs> oh, touche. Also good. Touche. <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll say it again. This this is such iconic Bond material that doesn't feel repetitive, doesn't mm-hmm. feel too fanservice-y. It feels like a Bond movie. Oh, it it definitely deserves top 10 status for sure for me. Yeah. It's just good. Yeah. So good. And it, it, it really it really is. Like Galv turned me around on it. <laughs> a good a good amount. Like yes. it's it's I don't know if it gets into top five for me, but it's de- it might be, I don't it, understand it be, that at all. It, but it might be number six. Uh, that's a whole discussion we have to have when we're done with all of this. Okay, well, yeah, I but mean, woo. it's hard. It's hard. It's so hard. It's there's a lot of movies. There's so many. There's a there's lot of things to consider. Twenty five. I know. <laughs> well, Jamie, that is our movie. If people wanted to find more of your wonderfulness on the wide, wide world of the internet, where could they find you? Probably the best place is Twitter. You can find me at uh, Irreverend Jamie. I R Irreverend Jamie. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for coming and talking Skyfall with us. This has been so wonderful. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.